The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the third chapter. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply, John said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked John, Teacher, what should we do? John said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And and we, what should we do? John said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So... With many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people, the gospel of the Lord. Y'all can be seated. So uh, out of all the gospel texts that I get to read in, in church, and there's a lot of them that I really enjoy, I think this one has to be my favorite. Part of it's because the middle schooler in me just really enjoys hearing John go up to a group of people that, that were there to hear him bring the word of God and start off, you brood of vipers. It, it makes me wonder, you know, what kind of relationship did John really have with these people? We, we do know that John wasn't just somebody who, who preached in the countryside for, for five people who were gathered around. John was someone, as we hear in all four gospels, who gathered crowds. And, and it makes me wonder, you know, maybe... Is this, is this the reason that sometimes fire and brimstone preaching gets so popular? You know, Jonathan Edwards, remember him? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's something that I remember we had to read in high school literature. And I remember reading that sermon and thinking to myself, you know, the, the, God, the God that Jonathan Edwards is talking about does not sound a whole lot like the God that I hear about on Sunday mornings. I, I remember going to church with a girlfriend of mine in high school because I, I figured out that I could always spend more time with the girls that I dated by going to church with them on Sunday morning. And my parents never said, no, you can't go to church, right? So I remember going to a Southern Baptist church, not, not Southern Baptist, this was Southern Baptist, and, and hearing from the preacher about, and maybe this wasn't really what he was saying, but what I remember hearing is that Anybody who doesn't go to that congregation is suspect. You know, they are in dire straits and in real jeopardy of ending up in hell. I remember a friend of mine who went to that church, who happened to live behind me, said to me one day while we were standing out in the backyard 
Do you believe in Jesus? And being the Lutheran that I was growing up in the Lutheran church, I said, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And this was the first time that I ever remember hearing that question. And I was like, well, I was baptized. Oh, good. When were you baptized? I don't know, sometime in November of 1979, which would have made me two years old. And he said, what do you mean? And I was like, I don't know. I was baptized in 1979. And he said, well, how could you be baptized in 1979? You were just a baby. And I said, well, that's how you baptize people, right? And he said, well, unless you understood the baptism, it doesn't count, which confused me greatly. And he went away in fear and trembling for my own salvation. You know, by this point, I was in sixth or seventh grade. I, I had already kind of started to think for the first time, maybe I could be a pastor. And so up until that point, I kind of thought me and God were on good terms. And it was, it was one, of the, one of the first times that, that I really remember realizing that, you know, not only are there people who follow different religions than what we follow, because I had a friend in elementary school who was Hindu, so I had a really interesting conversation with mom, I remember, in about second grade about reincarnation, but, but this was the first time that I realized that somebody could be Christian and, and have ideas about who God is, what God is about, how God's salvation works, how God's love works, how God's welcome works, how church works, how community works, how any of this works, that could be so different than what we thought. And I was just absolutely stuck on this for a long time. And so I, that was one of the first times that I really started, you know, searching for, you know, how is it that we begin to, to build community together, even though in seventh and eighth grade I couldn't say it this way, but how do we build community together with people who believe in Jesus in such different ways? And I remember wondering even then, why in the world would anyone want someone to talk to them like this? And it was one of the reasons why I got probably obsessed might be a strong word, but really curious about the introduction to John the Baptist in the Gospels, starting out with you brood of vipers because it was so unlike anything that I could consider good news. And what I've, and I don't know that this is the answer. When I say I got the answer, I don't mean like I, I had a ray of light that descended upon me, and in a moment of brilliance, I have the answer. What I mean is, like, I've got an answer that works for now, and next week I may figure out a different the answer, right? But what I finally figured out is that one of the things that happens as an adult that, that you don't think happens when you're a child is you spend a lot of your life faking it. You spend a lot of your life hoping that you're making the right decision, hoping that you know the right thing to do, hoping that you're giving good advice, hoping that you're able to figure out, you know, how do I keep a job? How do I get a job? How do I find a house? How do I work my, you know, all the things that eventually we get better at. So much of our adult life, especially as younger people, is spent kind of faking it and pretending we know the answers because we think everybody else must know more than what we know, right? Maybe I'm not the only one who's ever experienced that. This idea that I don't know exactly what it means to be an adult, but there must be an adultier way to do this than what I'm doing. And that discomfort, that frustration, that, that lack of security that comes from trying to figure out 
how to do things the right way and how to be responsible when you don't feel like you're responsible. And, you know, as, as young as some of us get married, I was 20, 24 when I got married to my wife, Lauren, who at the time was 19. You know, she, at 19, she was more mature than I am now. And, and somehow we had to figure out what it looks like to be adults together. And I just remember thinking to myself, how much I had expected when I was 10 and 12 and 15 and 25 that at some point I was going to have the answers and I was waiting for that bolt from the blue to descend upon me. You know, at at 25, magically your car insurance goes down. So maybe I get the answers then, but no answers came. You know, at at 20, I've been ordained for six years now, seven years. So at, at 32, I thought, maybe when I'm ordained, all of a sudden I'll feel like an adult. And then it just didn't happen. You know, I remember in February this year when I started this call, I was like, well, maybe now that I'm, I'm working for the bishop, I'll finally feel like an adult. And one day this may happen. And I certainly don't know any better whether what I'm always doing is right or not. But what I do know is in the midst of all this confusion, being able to say, that this is the right way to do things. This is the right way to be a Christian. This is the right way to believe in God. This is the right way to share the the gospel of God with other people. Wouldn't that be comforting? And I understand in this context why it is that maybe sermons like Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God or those Southern Baptist preachers who preach hellfire and brimstone and tell everybody you got to believe in God this way or else everything is going away. It's seductive because it tells us that God is the one who gives us the answers. And when we really get down to the heart of things in a world where so much is up in the air, where so often we feel like we're inadequate, in a world where so often we wonder how, how could this world be the world that exists and not the world that we had hoped for, wouldn't it feel great to be able to have some real answers? You know, and sitting in this morning in the deuterocanonical workshop or Sunday school on Esther, it was interesting to hear the way some of those stories kind of weaved in to this temptation to find answers, isn't it? Remember, Pastor was talking about how, how the authors of these editions had, had written these so that they could write God back into the Bible, which sounds weird to say, but it's true. Because these were people, I think, who were looking for answers too. We as human beings like for things to be wrapped up in a neat little box with a bow on it so that we can put it in categories that fit neatly together because it makes us feel so much better. When, when our lives have clearly defined purpose, when our lives have clearly defined meaning, and we're able to say this is this and that is that, and there are no blurred lines in between. And ultimately what we find in the Lutheran church is something that becomes kind of frustrating if answers is what we're looking for. Because in the Lutheran church, we understand God to be revealed to us in relationship. And relationships are always messy. Relationships are always in motion. Relationships never have clear borders. They're, they're not usually well-defined. And 
because we're always changing, especially like marriages. You know, I remember getting married and thinking, now that I have a wife, things are going to be easy because she recognizes what a good person I am and how reasonable I am. And it took me, let's see, we left the church in our reception and we were on the way into Charleston and we started arguing about what exit was the right exit to get off. So two hours after the reception, all of a sudden, I was no longer the reasonable guy that I thought I was and I had turned into my father, who is mostly reasonable except when he's driving. And we realize in, in these relationships, you know, all of a sudden, mom and dad don't look so crazy when you think about all the times that they were frustrated with each other or angry with each other or fighting with each other. And it's not so crazy when we're in these relationships to realize how they could swing from being so angry at each other, they could spit nails to hugging and, and trying to make up with each other and, and live into that love that they share 10 minutes later. And, and you realize as you get married and you're in this relationship that, yes, this relationship is changing me. Yes, this relationship is helping me to learn more about love and more about myself and more about what it means to, to be a good person. But it is not the thing that I thought it was because I thought it was going to give me answers. My relationship with God not because God changes, because God remains constant, but because I change and I, I am inconstant, my relationship with God is the same thing. I have peaks and I have valleys and I have good times and I have hard times. And I have times where I feel like God is so close. He's closer than my skin. And times where I feel like God is so far away, the most distant star doesn't represent a distance that's far enough away. And if I were looking for a God of answers, this would be confusing. This would be difficult. This would be something that would give me great comfort to know that God tells me this exact thing and only this exact thing. But when we look at the Bible and we really read it, and we really look at the stories and we really look at what happens, what we realize is that all throughout the Bible, what we have is stories about relationships that people are having with God. And these relationships all throughout the Bible are messy. These relationships all throughout the Bible contain stories of people who are having trouble being faithful, but worshiping the God who is. These people have trouble loving, but they worship the God who loves them. These people have trouble believing consistently, but worship the God whose faithfulness is strong enough for all of us. And where we find the answer isn't in a set of rules. Even though rules are good to help us understand relationships, where, where I find the answer is in the recognition that even though this world is crazy, and sometimes I'm crazy, and sometimes the people around me are crazy, God is constant, and God can be trusted. As, as John is preaching to the people, I think part of his draw is because they saw in John's fussing and fighting and, and strangeness someone who could give them a vision of God that was clear. And he told them exactly what they already kind of thought about themselves. You brood of vipers! We are so much more willing to believe that we are nasty people than we are willing to believe that we are good people, right? 
We are so much more willing to believe those bad things about ourselves than we are to believe the good things about ourselves. We hear the words of John, and I think the reason they're so seductive for me is because they confirm in me what I already know, that I'm not the good person that I want to be. The things in my mind, if anyone knew what I was thinking, they could never love me again. I'm part of this brood of vipers, and I'm part of a humanity that is broken, and I'm part of a world that is broken, and I'm part of a world that can't find its way. And, and I hear the words of John proclaiming, you know, even now the axe is lying at the foot of the tree. And doesn't that confirm what we just all kind of think is really the case about the world? That God's got it out for us, because look around us. Could it be any different? And then we hear something different as we look toward the coming of Jesus. As we look toward the one who was expected to come with a sword to avenge the fallen, who was expected to come and overthrow the government so that Rome no longer had a hold over the people, the one who is expected to come with all those things that we think about in the Psalms where we talk about what God's going to do to our enemies and what we get is a baby in a manger, powerless, unable to do anything for himself, just like all of us. This power of God contained in an improbable, and unlikely and unbelievably fragile body. And we see that and we recognize the, the truth of what God is that God doesn't come giving us, especially the answers we expect, but God comes on God's own terms in relationship. As messy and as uncertain and as unsatisfying as that can be, God comes to us in a way that allows us to grow into and seek out our place where God is. That's why we baptize, I think, as infants. I think I could, I could give you 40 minutes probably on why we baptize as infants and why other people don't. But I think ultimately, for me, as I think back to that conversation I had with my friend, you know, that's the answer of why our baptism as infants is something that, that works. Because our whole life as people who follow Jesus is about the power of God that's in, at work in us and not the power that we have at work in God. Our whole life as children of God is the God who named us and claimed us and formed us in our mother's womb before we were able to believe anything, before we were able to confess anything, before we were able to profess anything, before we were able to even pronounce our own name or God's name, God loved us and loves us and continues to love us and calls us by name. And through the waters of baptism, that name is beloved. That name is holy. That name is the name that is written on our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit in the waters that move through us our entire lives. Beyond our control, beyond our ability to really understand or explain. Because God does not come to us in the comfortable spaces. In our weakness, God's strength is perfected. In our space of not knowing, 
God imparts to us knowledge about who we are and what we're about. In the space where we realize that we are dead and broken and we have no power of our own, God is declaring new life and salvation in the spaces where we have no control. So as we go out this week and we think about what it is that we're called to do, how is it that we can live out this message of unconditional, unreasonable, ununderstandable love that God has for us? How is it that in this season of hope and light and joy that we can shine with the light that God puts in our hearts through the waters of baptism so the world can see what we do and hear the words we say and even if, like in Esther, the word God never crosses our lips, they can see the light of God shining through us into their lives and changing their hearts before they're even able to understand what it is. Amen.